Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. Of course, there are only so many verses and so many passages that deal with this time of year. Uh, these are familiar to us. If you've been to church at all or come through at Christmas, then you probably have read these um, and know these. Uh, these are important passages. They are historic passages, as we will see. And there is a reason why they are here, and that is that we might understand uh, that the Lord's plan has been worked out perfectly throughout the millennium. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might have understanding, not just to the words on the page, what they really mean, that they would penetrate our hearts, bring the grace of Christ to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or enrolled or census. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. We all have uh, opinions, some we hold very dear. Uh, if I find it in scripture, then it's not an opinion, it's what it says. I hold that dearer than my own opinions. But I have some very unpopular opinions, and one of them is my firm conviction that Christmas should be celebrated on the fourth Sunday of December. Um, now, see, it's not a very popular opinion, because, uh, oh, Sunday, it's once every seven years it's on Sunday morning, and we all put everything that we do on hold and come, and I'm like, yeah, but it's the birth of Christ. That's why we celebrate. We should worship. I haven't mu had much progress with that. Um, so the, the question is, well, why is it that we celebrate on the 25th of December? Now, there are a variety of, of opinions and historic things, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to narrow it down and just give you some why we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December. Now, uh, it goes way back to in, into the uh, 4th century B.C., 336-ish, right around there, when uh, Constantine, the emperor, um, uh, became a believer sometime during his reign. Now, I'm, we're not here to judge how much of a believer he was or not, but this is what uh, academia hist history tells us. And he set the date, as far as I could tell, that this would be the date that we celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, why the 25th? As I said, a couple explanations. One explanation is that because the Roman Empire celebrated, and, and you know, there were... In Rome, as an example, two-thirds of the population of Rome were slaves. 
and the only days they got off or had an easier day was a feast day. So feast days were very important. Uh, and this feast day on the 25th of December was for the unconquered sun. That's S-U-N, Solvic Invictus. Okay, so Constantine said, hey, I'm a believer now. Let's celebrate the birth of Christ here in place of this regular feast day that the people are used to. Now, that part of that might be um, the reason. Another part might be that tradition tells us, tradition, not scripture. We don't find the date set in scripture. Tradition tells us that the date of Christ's crucifixion and his birth were the, or, or, or conception were the same. Okay, now we celebrate Easter uh, in March or April uh, based upon a rather complex view of the moon and its phases, okay, which uh, are not biblical, but we celebrate in the spring, okay? And if he was conceived in the spring, then he would be born December-ish, okay? Now, which, which is true? How much is true? I don't know, but we celebrate on the 25th, okay? Should be the fourth Sunday, but that's a, we'll, we'll put it. So the date of his birth is, it, it doesn't matter theologically in the sense of his salvific action, okay? But the place of his birth matters very much because it was foretold seven or 800 years before in Micah, as we have read there. And Luke does a wonderful thing. It's very straightforward, very simple. It's, it's un, unbellished, embellished language here. And it's as clear uh, and it is profound at the same time. Now, every Jew uh, in Israel knew something about the promised Messiah because they had been taught growing up, these, this is the, the Messiah is going to come. They knew their Old Testament. Everybody in Israel knew the Messiah would come. He would be king, that he would be from the line of David. He would reign and his throne would be in Jerusalem and he would establish the kingdom. Okay? So one thing that was explicit about his coming was that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, it says here in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, because you have to go back to Genesis 35 to see that Bethlehem at that time was called Ephrathah. So they just put the same, so it's almost like saying Bethlehem, Bethlehem, when it says Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Uh, so every first century Jew who had studied the Old Testament knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Luke never quotes verbatim Micah. Matthew quotes Micah. But he does show us, and, and this is really where we're going today, that the Lord can use our selfish human desires to accomplish his will. Now, now I have a lot of selfish human desires, okay? And I think, well, can God overcome those? Well, sure he can. He can do anything he desires, anything which is in his definition, is good. Anything which helps conform me to the image of Christ. But he used selfish human desires to help orchestrate the birth of Christ and the arrival of Joseph and Mary at just the right time, and we'll see that. These things had to happen because they were prophesied. Therefore, they had to come about. He had to be born there for the sake of the veracity of the word of God. God acted to make it happen exactly as it was foretold, exactly as it was planned before the foundation of the earth, when there was only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And they came to an agreement according to the will of the Lord that Christ would come and that he would pay the penalty for the sin of humanity that the Lord would create. Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem at just the right time to deliver the Christ child. Luke makes us understand this without without ever quoting Micah uh, because he knows the readers of his gospel are going to be aware of that passage. Micah Micah spoke those things in the 8th century. Now, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Um, and the northern kingdom would be, um, we had uh, Israel, which was north, Judah, which was south. And he is speaking this prophecy, really it's a prophecy of judgment to start, because of the sins of the people of the northern kingdom. Uh, they were full of idolatry. They had uh, just kind of pitched out the worship, the true worship of the Lord and uh, we're, we're oppressing the poor, we're taking the poor to court, and, and the rich were winning because they were making bribes. It, it just was all bad. And Micah comes in and says, because you have done this, the Lord is going to judge you, and it's going to be bad. Now, 722 B.C., this is your prehistory lesson, 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and they destroy the, the northern kingdom. They don't come to the southern kingdom. They just destroy the northern kingdom. But before he ends his prophecy, he leaves them with words of hope that a king would come and restore the kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah, which was in the midst of a very long spiritual decline, um, was warned by the prophets of the coming judgment if they didn't get their stuff together. We see the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, and so they ignored them, and finally uh, judgment came upon them in 586 by the Babylonians, and they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So all of the things that they were being judged for, both the northern and the southern kingdom, uh, would lead to this great final curse, and Micah doesn't Micah alludes to it. He doesn't quote it, but the curse comes out of Leviticus 26, and I'll just read it for you. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, that's the Lord, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That is not hyperbole. Okay, sieges were so bad that parents were eating their children. That's how bad it was. Okay, I will destroy your high places, those places of idol worship, cut down your incense altars, cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas. I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword after you. Your land shall be a desolation. Your cities shall be laid waste. That's pretty bad. Okay? You're going to be kicked out of the land that you thought you were promised to and could live however you want. And no, no bad thing would come to you because you were the Lord's. But you failed to worship the Lord in the way that he wanted. You failed to do justice. You failed to do righteousness. As I said, this was not the last word of Micah, the last word to this people who just said the Lord is going to judge you and wipe you clean from the land. 
but the Lord will bring a king and he will rule with justice and with righteousness. And guess where he will be born? In Bethlehem. Now, Luke chapter 2, if you still have your Bible open, in those days, well, what days are those? Well, you have to go back to chapter 1 to find out which days Luke is referring to. It would be the days of King Herod of Judea. Say, those were the days. Now, Herod, and we all have heard about Herod. Uh, Herod is still on, is on the throne here. He's on the throne for a little bit longer. Uh, we know about Herod mostly because he was, he was a bad guy. Okay, I mean, just a bad guy. And, and he killed his favorite wife. He killed some of his sons because he was afraid they were going to come and take his throne. And as he got older, he imprisoned all the most popular people or popular leaders in Jerusalem. Um, and he said, now, on the day that I die, I know that nobody's going to mourn me, so I want you to kill all those people that, I've been, that I have imprisoned uh, so that there will be mourning and I can be thrown into that. Well, thankfully, the people who imprisoned them just let them go when Herod finally died. Okay? Uh, but Herod was the one who slaughtered all the infants around Bethlehem. Now, we think, how many could that be? Um, well, it, it's unknown. And why is it unknown? Well, it's not important for us to know the exact number. It's important for us to know that that was his plan and that's what he instituted and Christ was gone by then. So within the last two years. Um, so in those days, uh, continuing about what, kind, what things are going on in those days, that's when Gabriel came to Zacharias and Elizabeth. The same days when Gabriel came to Mary, the days when John was born, those days of Herod. Now, Herod was a, uh, a, an Edumaean. I always have trouble with that word, um, which means he was a descendant of Esau. So he really wasn't in the line of the Jewish people. So they really didn't, the Jews really didn't like Herod because he was, a, in a sense, a usurper. He was a vassal king under Roman authority and Caesar Augustus he was a pretty smart guy uh, and he, so he gave the people the little countries under Roman rule some autonomy and they could they would have rulers that were from them of course they were Caesar's men um, so they were yes men to him so Herod still had a little bit of authority over the Jews those were the days not only of Roman occupation, but of Roman taxation. Now, the Jews hated the Romans. They hated the Romans, mostly because, well, they were in their land and they were running the Jews, but they were Gentiles, okay? And they just did not like the Gentiles at all. Um, in fact, if, if they didn't go into Gentile houses because then they would be considered unclean, they didn't eat with Gentiles for fear that, uh, they were eating on a Gentile utensil. That would make them unclean. Uh, if they left the land and went to a Gentile land and came back before they entered Israel, they would, sorry, you can't see that. They would wipe the dust off of them so that Gentile dust wouldn't come into their land. So they had no loves for the Gentiles. They had no loves for Romans, no love for Romans because also the Romans were idolatrous. They had a lot of gods, but most importantly, you had to worship Caesar as God as well. 
course, they despised the Romans because the Romans taxed them, and they used Jews to collect the taxes from Jews. So not only did they hate the Romans, they hated the Jewish tax collectors who did their bidding. And who was the famous tax collector? Well, there's a couple famous in Scripture. Matthew was a tax collector. Okay. Now, it's interesting. Out of the 12, you've got Matthew, and then you've got Simon the Zealot. Okay who was ultra-Jewish. And then you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was doing the Romans' business and usurping that position against the Jews. But the Lord calls people from all walks to believe. So it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, that's the reigning Caesar of the day. Caesar Augustus is not really his name. Caesar is a title of authority. Augustus is more of an honorary uh, being august. Okay? Um, so, uh, it, you know, highly esteemed, highly regarded. So the census was to be taken in all the inhabited earth. And, of course, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everybody to their own city pretty general statement in chapter 3 of Luke he makes a very specific uh, statement uh, historically so that there is more detail in the first couple verses of chapter 3 so the Caesars were pretty fond of censuses uh, because that was a way to count how many bodies there were that was a way to figure out how much tax income you were going to have because Caesars needed a lot of income. They had lavish lifestyles. Um, they had big armies in which to conquer the known world. Uh, so they needed taxes from all over the place. Uh, now the Caesar at that time recorded in his Res Geste Divi Augusti, that would be the deeds of the divine Augustus. That was his personal diary. What's the name of your personal diary? The divine Randy Jensen. Uh, that, that doesn't, that's no good. Okay, but he, he it, it records there were at least at least three censuses during that rule, 28, 8, and 14 in that general area. But there were more localized census, censuses as well, and they took place on a more regular basis. Judah faced at least three censuses around the time of the birth of Christ, 8 B.C., 2 B.C., 6 A.D., and these are known from records that were found from Egyptian, uh, Egyptians writing down about Roman censuses. Um, and in fact, in Egypt, there was a census every 14 years. So we have one every 10 years. The Egyptians, under Roman rule, had one every 14. So the specific census, it's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 2, is the one that took place, the first one that took place under Quirinius. Now, Quirinius is seen in the Roman historian Tacitus, and also in Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian. So he is a real-life figure. This is not something made up. All of this was in order to fulfill the prophecy of Micah. And it was critical that Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem at the right time so Jesus could be born in Bethlehem according to the scriptures. Now, it was generally understood that Roman law... Um, it instructed the property owners to register for taxation in their district, in their district. 
But again, another writing, a papyrus from Egyptian prefect in 104 AD, ordered Egyptians to return to their ancestral homes so that a census could be taken. Now, they were under Roman rule at the time. So, um, Dave, uh, Joseph's ancestral home would have been Bethlehem because who was born in Bethlehem? David. Okay. So, that property would be considered, in a sense, family property. So, he had to return to Bethlehem, the place of the family property. But at the same time, surely Joseph and Mary understood the prophecy. They were good Jews. They understood that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So it must have been amazing, you know, from their perspective, that the Lord was using the likes of Caesar Augustus to help get them to Bethlehem at the right time, exactly as the Lord had planned. And little did Caesar know that he was being used by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to do exactly what he did, precisely on the schedule that he did, to get the result that God had planned from before the foundations of the earth. Just think about that. Sinful man who wants more money so he can live more lavishly, he wants more money so that he can have bigger armies to conquer more of the world, is being used by the Lord to get a couple that he knows nothing about to a little out-of-the-way place in Judea named Bethlehem to serve the purposes of the Lord and to fulfill the prophecy. He, of course, he's utterly ignorant of these things, but yet the Lord is doing them. I think more than anything else, the events surrounding the arrival of Mary and Joseph at just the right time shows us the Lord will use the selfish desires of sinful men and women to achieve his purposes and that his purposes will be achieved despite the selfish desires of sinful men and women. Think of the life of Joseph. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. Think of the life of Joseph. There he is, a 17-year-old, and he's kind of a snotty 17-year-old, his daddy's favorite, and all the other brothers are hating him, and they decide to sell him off. Okay? What, what did they, were they thinking? You know, I think this is part of God's larger plan. If we can just get rid of our young brother, then, then God will have this great blessing for us. No, they just wanted him out. So they sold him to slavers. Off he went to Egypt. They kind of washed their hands. Now, they, a couple of them feel a little guilt about it, but they got over it, apparently. Joseph goes to Egypt, works in Potiphar's house, becomes has charge over everything except Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife says, I think I'd like Joseph. And he runs out, gets accused of doing wrong, gets thrown into prison. Now, now where is it that Joseph thinks, maybe God has a plan for me here? Uh, then he does the dreams, the cupbearer, the baker. Cupbearer is going up to see Pharaoh again, going to be restored. The baker going to lose your head. And he spends two more years in prison waiting for the cupbearer to say, oh, Pharaoh, I know this guy. Okay, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. He's still in prison. Pharaoh brings him out, interprets the dream. Here comes the famine. Pharaoh says, you're in charge. Make sure everybody can eat. So Joseph stashes away all this grain for seven years. And about the second year, his family shows up. 
come to buy grain. And they're like, they don't know who Joseph is. It's been 22 years since they sold him into slavery. And there he is. He knows who they are. And then we get to the end, the very end of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph makes this great statement. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Caesar Augustus means his census for evil. More money, bigger army, more lands, more slaves. God meant it for good to fulfill the prophecy. Earlier this month, we always have the, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. A very interesting fact of Pearl Harbor was the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. His last name was Fuchida. He was chosen by Admiral Yamamoto to lead the attack. He's the guy that basically, paraphrasing, flew in, in a lazy circle around everything and directed the other guys to come in. He was raised in a samurai culture. He wanted nothing more than to crush the enemies of Japan and to have his name exalted. He was, in fact, one of the few people to actually meet the emperor because of his work at Pearl Harbor. He was one of the few pilots who were in Pearl Harbor to survive the war. He was in a hotel room on August 5th, 1945, in Hiroshima, and on August 6th, the hotel was vaporized, so he survived that one. There's a purpose, obviously, in his survival. Now, he finishes the war. His heart is full of hate. And there's also a man who finished the war. His name was DeShazer. He was in the Doolittle Raid. And he was a great believer. But he was shot down and held captive for 40 months in a Japanese prison camp. His Christian behavior and ministry really changed the entire atmosphere of that prison camp. So after the war, DeShazer stayed in Japan. And in the Lord's providence, he met Fuchida, and he led Fuchida to Christ. Fuchida became an evangelist, not just in Japan, but here in the United States. His desire, his selfish desire, was to have his name exalted and his position in life exalted. But yet the Lord used all of those things to draw him unto himself that he would exalt the name of Christ. God will use the sinful and selfish desires of men and women to achieve his purposes, whether it's a Roman emperor, whether it's a Japanese fighter pilot, whether it's you and me. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come here and we are grateful to see the fulfillment of your plan not just in the, in the place of the birth of Christ, but in the lives of those that, that appear to have no interest in you. Yet it is your grace that saves them and changes them, that prepares them for your purposes. Lord, it applies to us as well. For those of us who have been changed by your grace, we, we probably weren't looking for it, we're interested in it. But you called us by name and you drew us unto yourself. And you changed us. There's still sin within us, Lord. We battle against that. But it is more and more our desire 
to do your perfect will. Lord, we want to be your hands and your feet. We want to proclaim the things of Christ, and especially at this time of year, the coming of Christ. The child who was born into this world so that he would live a sinless life and he would give that life to atone for our sin. Lord, he did something we could never do. Therefore, his righteousness is given to us and our sin is laid upon him. Fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that we would know the grace that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let us all stand and sing the song of the angels. Glory.